Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What could go right? For this episode, we are talking to Kevin Michael Rudd. Kevin Rudd uh, is formerly Australia's prime minister. He was prime minister from 2007, the very end of 2007 to 2010, and then for a brief uh, period in 2013. He was born in Queensland. He has a degree in Chinese studies from ANU, Australian National University. He worked as a diplomat in China, uh, and then he went into the House of Representatives in Australia in 1998 and eventually became uh, leader of the Labour Party and then prime minister and was also foreign secretary. He's currently living in the United States, in New York. He is the inaugural president of the Asia Society's Policy Institute, which does a lot of Asia Society's policy work, as, as it expresses. And he travels around the world still offering his counsel and insight to politicians, business leaders, thinkers, intellectuals, you name it, uh, because he has this unique view of the world coming from Australia, having spent a lot of time in China, living in the United States. And by virtue of that, and by virtue of the fact that he is interesting, insightful individual, brings a certain perspective to bear on the questions of what is going on in the world today? What is going on with liberal democracy, with capitalism, with this triad that I've talked about before? You know, is this going to be the foundational basis, liberalism, democracy, capitalism for prosperity going forward? Is there going to be a Chinese model that is different and works and becomes exportable beyond the borders of China? Will our own notions of democracy and liberalism change? in ways that are constructive or ways that are destructive? Is the world better off or worse off from the changing role of the United States? All of these questions and more we will delve into now. Kevin Rudd, so we are speaking, you are currently in Australia. I'm sure you will be in a completely different place by the time this discussion airs, but there's an interesting question that I've had with some people about how does the world change depending on where you are and where you're sitting? And this is always a challenge, right? That the world as you see it is framed by your own cultural context, your own geographical context. And if you're in the Western world now, there's a particular perspective about what's going on in Asia and globally. And if you're in Asia now, there's a particular perspective about what's going on in the West and globally. And Australia, even though you now split your time and spend a considerable amount of time in New York, Australia is its own beast, right, in, in the way in which you're able to observe all of these patterns. So sitting where you are, what's the view of the world? Are we all kind of heading to hell in a handbasket? Is this current dyspeptic, dystopian moment justified or is it a more complicated picture and we're, we're missing something? I think dystopia in general has become far too fashionable to in fact be realistic. Um, the world's been through convulsions in the past, huge convulsions, and we're going through another range of convulsions now. But it doesn't mean that we can't navigate our way through. Your broader point about how we perceive reality from where we sit in the world is an important one. Of course, all of us suffer from the illusion or the delusion that wherever we happen to sit, constitutes the objective epicenter of reason and everyone else is simply some crazed mad bastard. It's not quite like that. We simply have different perspectives. 
The only advantage I bring in terms of how I view what's happening in the world today is having lived in America now for the last three or four years and having lived previously in China as a diplomat um, some decades ago and also being an Australian is that over a period of time you do look at the same reality through different lenses. And so what I see, however, is an emerging huge gap between the Chinese perception of let's call it emerging realities and how America perceives those same realities. And that's where the gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And frankly, those of us who try to occupy a space in between those two realities are finding less and less safe ground to stand on. It's an interesting question, though, right? There's never been a safe liminal zone in politics or in political perspectives. So while it's an honorable space to try to occupy, the sort of the on the one hand, on the other hand space of, hey, wait a minute, there's another way of looking at this. And obviously, I've been trying to occupy that space myself in various ways for a long period of time. It's not really a space that's occupied. It, it is, in fact, a gap where only a few people like to hang out because it doesn't have clear delineations and clear lines and clear attitudes. And everyone wants to know which one is right. In this China-US emerging, they see the world from one perspective, we see it from another. Is there a way to bridge that gap other than you trying to occupy it and trying to bridge it? Well, the bottom line is all of us crave at the end of the day a high level of cultural, political, and civilizational certainty. And that's why we ultimately end up in the position of uh, asking uh, people, including folks like myself, well, where do you stand with them or with us? I think these two great civilizations and cultures, by which I mean China and America, and by America I just don't mean the last couple of hundred years, I mean uh, its um, antecedental uh, roots in wider Western civilization as well. Obviously, they look at international realities differently. But at the same time, the closer I look at these two countries as well, there are values which actually unite them. And there are interests which unite them as well. Uh, if I look at the two civilizations' values, the Chinese traditional view, for example, of the centrality of the family is not dissimilar to the way in which Americans have traditionally looked at the family themselves. When I look at also uh, questions of interests, and the Chinese now look at uh, the existential threat to the planet and to themselves uh, represented by climate change, most sentient Americans uh, would have a similar view. And so to simply assume we have a total gap in the way in which these two countries and civilizations look at each other without some overlap, I think, is wrong. But at the same time, we've got to be clear about um, what the, uh, the differences are, and they go to core questions effectively of ideology. So it's often said that it's much easier to tear down than it is to construct. It's been 20-plus years, maybe a little less if you take the China's joining the WTO in December of 2001 as a sort of starting point of the interdependence between the United States and China economically. Do you think that this is so easily unwound in a short amount of time? Because if you, if you were to listen to rhetoric emanating from the United States, and probably to some degree rhetoric emanating from China, you would think that this relationship is unraveling at, if not lightning speed, then pretty quickly. But is it unraveling in anything other than rhetoric at the moment, as opposed to reality? No, there is some um, significant unraveling occurring. And let's just go to the elements of it. One, there is now a technology war unfolding between the United States and China. That is clear, not simply through American statements about um, Chinese um, penetration of American firms and the United States government through various acts of cyber, cyber espionage, but through a whole series of related decisions concerning technology transfer between the two countries, etc. This is an unraveling, and therefore uh, we would be foolish uh, not to recognize that as being um, real. And in many respects, it's driving the overall nature of the economic tensions between the two countries. Why? Because the United States correctly identifies that those who hold the high ground of high technology in the future will dominate the economy of the 21st century, 
China has reached a similar analysis and there is an ungodly race to the top where the Chinese view at least is that any means can be deployed in order to get there and to leapfrog the United States. So that reality of itself is quite separate from perceptions. That's what's happening. And that is driving much of what we uh, currently see. Uh, of course, at other broader foreign policy and national security policy uh, levels, uh, we see some elements of unraveling. But I think the cautionary note is this. To assume, therefore, that we have gone from 40 years of strategic engagement between China and the United States suddenly into a Cold War misreads the term. The Cold War, when it existed between the Soviet Union and the United States, meant zero economic contact, zero people-to-people contact, multiple third-country proxy wars between the two superpowers, and each threatening each other with nuclear Armageddon. That's what a Cold War is. And frankly, we don't have anything approaching that at this stage. Therefore, there's still a capacity to navigate our way through this. You know, it's funny. I spoke with uh, Kai-Fu Lee, who is, as you know, one of the leading Chinese executives who's also been with Google and, and been with Microsoft and has been a leading artificial intelligence researcher. And I think he sees it a little bit differently in that there is a, there is a technological competition in that both the United States and China would prefer to have the mantle of, of technological leadership, either building out the next generation of wireless communications or building out the new generation of AI applications. But his sensibility is that, at least as of now and for the next, whatever our foreseeable future is, the different skills and strengths of China and the United States mean that both are still doing better with a kind of a co-opetition rather than a zero sum. Um, There's things that China does very well in terms of refining and implementing. There are things the United States tends to do very well in terms of sheer, pure, you know, new frontier innovation. And at least for now, he doesn't see that this has been as interrupted as you would think, or at least as as much as people say. I mean, what do you make of that? I think Mikai-Fu is um, putting the most positive gloss on it as possible. And he's also reflecting on where things have been, probably until the last year or so. But I think uh, we would be delivering a disservice to your listeners to suggest that that reality is continuing. That part of the reality is unraveling, as both sides have worked out um, in their own minds that there is an element of zero-sum game in this, in terms of who reaches the top the most rapidly and the most expeditiously. Uh, particularly in the commanding heights of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence and the national strategy agreed upon by China announced by President Xi Jinping in April of 2017 uh, is in fact a high strategy for the nation because they've worked out that this is so important. Similarly, the United States, I think, in analysing what China is doing through its AI strategy and its broader high-tech strategy through China 2025, has seen this as the new terrain for battle. And it's not just in terms of economic ascendancy, it's because of the core military applications, which also arise from artificial intelligence domination. So I think uh, Li Kai-Fu is referring benignly to things as they may have been, but I think we are now seeing the unfolding of a complete and different reality. All right, so let's shift gears for a moment, because I'm curious about uh, the Australian perspective in all this. And most Americans are barely aware of Canada, let alone another you know, large and much more distant Anglo nation. Um, I mean, Australia obviously has this unusual economic history over the past decades of never really having had a recession, also kind of unusual in the Western world and being, I think, relatively favorable about immigration, even with much of uh, Europe and the United States turning away from that as a, as a moral virtue and as an economic driver. I mean, how, do, how does one explain those peculiarities, most of which are quite positive, given the way the rest of the Anglo-West has gone? Well, not Canada, too. I mean, Canada would be, I think, probably in a similar category. Well, there are many similarities between Canadians and Australians. You could probably regard Australians as like Canadians, except that we never say sorry. That's fair enough. But the bottom line is this. I mean, in Australia quite unlike Canada. We are very much the West and the East. Um, 
and prospectively the East and the West. That's where geography has placed us and that's where history has placed us. We are the one significant outpost of Western civilization in the wider Asian continent. And as a consequence, we've always had to deal with the complexity of what's unfolding in Asia in a way in which, frankly, our Western friends, either in Europe or in North America, have never had to contend with. Our closest neighbor is Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, spread across thousands of islands to the immediate north of Australia. And however pesky the United States may regard the Canadians, by and large, Canada represents a much more predictable and benign neighbor to the north than has been Australia's historical experience until recent decades of Indonesia. The overall point is that if you're looking at the world from an Australian lens, we've had to understand Asian complexity as part of our core national survival, at least since the Second World War when we faced the cusp and the threshold of a full-scale territorial invasion by Japan. And so since that time, we've had to understand complexity and frankly be less judgmental of political and democratic imperfections in our wider region than is the case in the wider West. So when Asia rises, and Australia has benefited from that economically, we've been part and parcel of trying to understand the complexity of what's unfolded in our hemisphere, in this Asian hemisphere for the last half century or more. And I think what we often find is puzzling is when often Americans and certainly Europeans latterly discover what's happening in Asia, it's almost as if it's a shock for us, it's been more of an unfolding reality over the better part of a half century. Is there something universalizable about this experience or this perspective, or is it so much a product of this particular geography and this particular history that you'd be loath to apply lessons of to others where the graft you know, might not take? I think there are two essential principles here, to the extent that there's anything to be derived of benefit more broadly from the Australian experience. The first is, if you are a liberal democracy and you believe in universal human rights, irrespective of where you find yourself geopolitically in the world or geographically within the world, don't apologize for it. Stand up for it. Uh, be clear about it because that is um, marvelously delineating in terms of um, the nature of the relationship which you have with other states. The second principle, however, is this, and it almost tempers the first, and that is the importance of cultural and civilizational respect, that in approaching the high civilizations and cultures of Asia, which as this century progresses will increasingly dominate the world, we are looking at ancient civilizations uh, which are deserving of uh, basic respect because of their antiquity, their continuity, and their deep philosophical and uh, aesthetic traditions. And if there's something lacking in the West more generally, it's a visceral understanding and appreciation that there's a vast uh, array of civilizational depth which lies way beyond uh, what we have called happily the Occident uh, for the last you know, half a millennium. And so in approaching the high cultures and civilizations of Asia, including China, including India and others, what I think it's important to learn is basic respect, learning languages of the region, understanding their cultures in a way in which Westerners have traditionally sought to learn you know, French, Italian and Spanish as well as, uh, as English. You know, I wonder, I've talked with a bunch of people on this show about the future of some assumptions we've had about the drivers of prosperity or stability or peace or growth. And in the, in the Western context, right, this fusion of liberalism and democracy and capitalism, and you just talked about liberal democracy as part of the underpinnings of, of Australia, we've come to believe are this powerful triad that has been the engine of all that we think has been good in terms of progress, if you even believe in progress. And then you have the Chinese model, which doesn't really buy into that or is not about that and not constructed on it and not based on it. Um, do we feel like there's, there's room for more than one foundation of, of peace and prosperity or are you more suspicious of that? Because again, like a lot of the presumption in our parts of the world is that unless that's the foundation, unless those things are at the core, there's something fundamentally off, problematic and unsustainable about anything, any other system. There is a deep tension in 
what you have just raised. I have always believed that it's important to be clear about where liberal democratic values stand, open societies, open economies, and open polities, as being, I won't say the end of history, but as a reasonable uh, stage of development uh, for the human species. Uh, because compared with what has preceded it, which is various forms of rank authoritarianism uh, or autocratic abuse or the abuse of monopolistic power or the religious dogmatism of uh, earlier ages of uh, religious absolutism, uh, where we've evolved as a Western set of societies uh, has been, frankly, not a bad outcome. And there's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears on the way through. So therefore, it should not be conceded in any way lightly. The challenge lies in dealing with rising civilizations and cultures which do not necessarily share all those norms, of which China stands out as the principal example, is to be respectful of their own national choices on the one hand, while not apologizing for the tradition from which we come on the other. And on the much vexed question of universality, I simply draw attention to the fact that the Chinese are also signatories uh, to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, signatories to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights. So rather than being some abstract uh, Western standard against which we measure China, uh, we should also be mindful that China has adopted these standards itself, and therefore we should be, as it were, uh, mindful of the benchmarks they themselves have set to evaluate their approach to human rights and democracy, as well as economic freedom. Right, but they have often come back and said, they being different elements in the Chinese state or intellectuals have said, half of the Human Rights Declaration in 1948 pertained to economic rights, that it wasn't just about political rights, it wasn't just about rights of association, it was also about the rights to minimum standards of living, you know, caloric homes, healthcare, and that the the tradition, because of the way the Cold War went as a kind of a contest of political ideologies, that whole part of human rights, uh, you know, became second tier. And, and as you know better than anyone, the UN initially was structured where there was going to be an economic council on par with the Security Council, or at least similar to it. And that too, very quickly withered as, as a significant force. So they come back and say, look, we've honored human rights by honoring economic rights in, in a way that much of the rest of the world has not. So stop necessarily lecturing us about our failings on one part of the spectrum without at least acknowledging our success on the other. Well, the important thing uh, on that point is to reflect on different traditions within Western democratic capitalism on the one hand, and also and to be reflective of what China has achieved so far itself. Within the West, there are in fact two traditions of, let's call it, liberal democratic capitalism. One is the one I come from, which is social democratic, and unapologetically so, which accepts in fact that the inherent dignity of human beings and their uh, inalienable right of freedom must always be accompanied by attending to and the economic dignity of the human being as well. And that's why people who are social democrats are as much mindful of political liberties as we are of economic equality and rights of uh, equality of opportunity. And that's why there is quite a different tradition within the West represented by Labour parties, social democratic parties, or even democratic socialist parties along those lines, accepting the principles of capitalism accepting deeply the principles of democracy, but not regarding markets as in some sort of fundamentalist tradition. As for China, those of us who come from that social democratic tradition are always mindful of the material achievements of the Chinese revolution and what they've delivered in bringing six, seven, eight hundred million people out of poverty. This should never be simply pushed to one side as if it's an irrelevancy. At the same time, there are still aspirations among the Chinese people um, as incomes rise for a greater social and political space within their country. And that we see those tensions in China as we see them, have seen them in other emerging economies uh, throughout economic history as well. So it's a more complex picture than the dichotomous one you present. As you look at the world now where, I think we began this conversation with an awareness that dystopianism is prevalent and perhaps too prevalent, 
It's an odd question that isn't fully answered and probably not ever fully answerable as to why in a world where there is, statistically speaking, unusual levels of peace and prosperity. I mean, all the people who measure ongoing conflicts, this is not a particularly acute time of interstate conflict. There certainly is uh, some absolutely awful intrastate conflict in failed states. There's somewhat more refugees fleeing war-torn areas than there have been necessarily on average in the past 10 years. But if you were to look at the globe net-net, there is a disconnect between uh, material prosperity and a certain degree of stability and public attitudes in much of the world. Now, maybe, again, this is a product of where I sit. People sometimes push back and said, actually, if you talk to people in India, you talk to people in China, you talk to people in Vietnam or the Philippines, they're much more positive about the state of the world, or at least the trajectory heading forward than Latin America or Europe or the United States or Russia. But I mean, it does seem that there's a generalized climate of at least apprehension and and often negativity. How do you, I mean, how do you account for that, given that there's certainly been many decades of recent years where we've seen much more acute actual conflict, much more threatening circumstances than, than appear to be the case right now? Well, as I've indicated already in our discussion, I think there's something far too fashionable about the current dystopianism. And the reason I say that is because it's intellectually sloppy, because it fails to appreciate everything that is positively trending uh, in the world. And secondly, it's uh, morally sloppy, because it assumes the loss of political and human agency to act on the problems and tensions which are emerging and to do so in a uh, rational way which avoids repeating some of the more egregious mistakes in human history. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the first point, which is any measure of the human condition, whether it's measured in terms of uh, mortality, infant mortality, uh, and the rest, we have to look at the achievements of the post-war period and stand in awe of what has been delivered. This is, I think, um, a standout message. Look at what we've also delivered in the most recent uh, decade or so uh, within the framework of either the UN Millennium Development Goals or more recently the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and the actions of various states, including China, whereby all the global poverty indicators are basically heading in a positive direction. Of course, the flip side to that is that we are creating new sets of structural challenges for the international community to deal with as well. Uh, the huge imbalance in climate and environmental sustainability stares us in the face, which to date we've been politically impotent in dealing with as a global community but also the changing nature of geopolitics and geoeconomics is creating new challenges, which so far uh, we are not displaying appropriate international maturity in dealing with as well. But I simply go back to the overall point, is that we have human agency, we have the advantage of history. We can reflect on previous periods of significant human progress, say towards the end of the concert of Europe, that hundred years leading up until the outbreak of the First World War. And we can either simply go stumbling into a whole new set of geopolitical tensions and stumbling into um, a Third World War almost by accident, as if we somehow think it's historically predetermined, 
Or we simply sit back and work out actually there are common interests and there are common values uniting the United States and China. There are methods by which we can deal with the growing gap between Russia uh, and the United States and that we can forge a common future around the real challenges which matter, principally those presenting itself through climate change. So do you, I mean, if we're having this conversation a year from now or two years from now, do you think we're in a statically grim period that's not getting appreciably worse, but will also not get appreciably better? Obviously, this is more an indication of, you know, what's our sentiment about the next 12 to 24 months than it is an expectation of prediction, right? Predictions are kind of useless because they, they only really tell us about what we're feeling right now. But so I'm asking that question of you and, you know, are you feeling that the clouds are darkening or or it's not so simple or, you know, when you look at the next year, what do you feel? What do you, what's your instinct? Well, look at the next year, um, I see a growing impasse on substantive global action on climate change. Which is already the case now, right? I mean, it's, I mean, we're at an impasse already, correct? That's true. And I do not see agents of change at this stage emerging from global geopolitics um, capable of turning the corner on that. But I do believe that in among some of the middle powers that you'll begin to see greater uh, agents of change trying to haul the international community back into an effective consensus on these questions. And also, if some of the threshold discoveries um, yet to be realized uh, in science and technology, and particularly in the renewable energy sector, come to pass, then suddenly what seems like a dystopian future, if, if we add to it, not just scientific action, but political action can be turned around. On geopolitics, the next 12 months are going to be uh, highly unstable not least because the present United States is highly unstable. And this is a unique set of circumstances for the international community. The international community since 1945 has grown to accept and respect uh, the United States, not just as one of two superpowers and then the only remaining superpower, but also that its president would conduct a consistent course in the conduct of international affairs. That's now removed and given the pressures now on the Trump administration through the Mueller inquiry, the fear of many of us in the international community is that the rockiness of an unpredictability of uh, U.S. presidential decision-making will get worse, not better. So for those two sets of reasons, uh, we need to fasten our seatbelts and get ready for, I think, a rocky uh, 12 to 24 months ahead. That does not mean, however, that this places us into an irreversible trajectory uh, or spiral towards um, conflict and war. There are still too many agents of um, human responsibility and, and uh, political action uh, which are capable of pulling us in the reverse direction. And what about the idea that, that perhaps too much is made of Trump as a pivotal factor in some of these geopolitical global shifts and that a lot of what is happening if you take the weird, constant psychodrama of the Trump administration out of that equation, things like the relative shift in power, we've talked about China, but it's also true that many other societies are emerging in their own kind of regional economic might, whether it's India, whether it's Indonesia, which you referred to before, that, that a lot of what we're seeing happening and these realignments, which are never clear while they're going on, would have been going on to some degree, irrespective of who was in the White House, and, and may have created some degree of disturbance and confusion and disorientation, irrespective of whether or not you had someone tweeting erratically. The bottom line is there are deep structural changes underway in the world. We've been talking about a number of them, those relating to the huge disruptions delivered by artificial intelligence and high technology not just in the competitiveness of states and economies, but also the impact on work. You also have the great disruption of climate change and environmental sustainability, and the great disruption of geopolitics, the rise of China, and the United States increasingly equivocal about its future in the wider region and the world. So therefore, those factors would be uh, at work, um, irrespective of who occupied the White House at this time. 
The problem we have with the current occupant of the White House is that his unpredictability in decision-making uh, turbocharges the instability structurally arising from these other underpinning factors. That's why, as I said, the rest of the international community needs to behave responsibly if in the course of the next 12 months or 24 months we see an increasingly unpredictable US president at work. I think there's a broader point at work as well, which um, I think is important for an American audience. Sometimes our American friends assume that if and when this period of Trumpism is dealt with and the US body politic applies its normal automatic stabilizers and brings the system back to some sort of center, be it Republican center or Democrat center, that um, we'll simply resume where we were in the past. Unfortunately, the world also marches on. And the point I'd make to our American friends is there's been a significant and I think potentially lasting degree of brand damage done to the United States as a course over the course of the last couple of years. Although you could have said that in 2005 after Abu Ghraib and torture allegations, I mean, torture reality and and Guantanamo, right? I mean, it, it was surprising how quickly that, which seemed to be a pretty severe blow and a legitimate one, right? Was Obama got elected and gets the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009 and suddenly it's all roses again, reputationally. Well, there is, there is the point about as the normal operation of the political automatic stabilizers of democracies. And the United States, I suspect those forces will be at work as well. The qualitative difference between, for example, the excesses of the Bush administration's um, occupation of Iraq uh, and what we see at present is that uh, the assault on the norms of the international order currently being meted out by the US president are multiple, not singular. You see it in terms of the assault on the World Trade Organization, the United States' decision to withdraw altogether from the Human Rights Council in Geneva, the continuing and systematic assault on the United Nations, the assault on U.S. allies, the championing of protectionism, and a form of migration politics and refugee politics, which um, creates almost a moral precedent for the rest of the world. All I'm saying is that this is occurring on multiple fronts, not a single front. And a further factor underneath all those again is, despite those shifts in U.S. policy, the day-to-day -day also unpredictability of the U.S. administration causing many friends and allies around the world to question what is America's long-term strategic bearings? Therefore, these are real factors. There will be brand damage to the United States. Uh, it doesn't mean the United States cannot recover, but there'll be a degree of difficulty associated with that, which perhaps American policymakers have not fully thought through. Although, isn't that perhaps a good thing globally? You know, one of the big debates is, did you need a U.S. hegemon or does one need a hegemon, it happened to be the United States, to preserve an international system? Uh, and there are many voices saying, you know, the, one of the reasons why there's been such relative peace and prosperity over the past decades is because you had this United States military and, and, and value system somewhat keeping the peace, although not without massive hypocritical oopses along the way, like Vietnam and Iraq, which were not minor. Nonetheless, you had a system, right? And maybe it's a good thing for a system to now be maintained, albeit sloppily, by multiple nodes, rather than, you know, maybe this is not good for the United States, but it's good for the world. Well, ultimately, realities the international community have been delivered since 1945 were not necessarily the international community's choosing. They just arrived. America, by and large, with the assistance of its allies, won the war. And as a result, a whole new international order was constructed. And then for the next 40 years, um, it was a divided system between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But by and large, outside the Soviet bloc, you had the gravitational force of the American-constructed liberal international order pulling various countries, societies, and political systems into it. And the extension of the democratic tent continued so that more than half the nation states of the United Nations would now be described as fully functioning democracies. That could never have been said 75 years ago. 
So there's been some success, real success achieved uh, around this, together with the impact of um, economic globalization in increasing living standards around the world, notwithstanding the dislocations that globalization has brought about as well. And so the record so far is against the historical benchmark of superpowers in global history, Rome, Macedonian Greece, the Persian Empire, the French Empire, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire. Against the history of superpowers, frankly, uh, the United States has been one of the more benign uh, in human history, given by and large its predisposition not to go and invade and occupy other countries and create empires of its own, but to try and shape an order which is more consensual, based around, obviously, a Western set of values, but still with American force or the prospect of the use of force lying somewhere near the center. Not perfect. And if you were Latin American, if you were Chilean, if you're in Allende's presidential palace in 1973, you'd have a completely different view of what I've just said. But against the broad sweep of human history, the American um, century, if you like, in the post-45 period has been against historical standards a relatively benign one. As for the future and stepping into the brave new world of what is often described as uh, the intrinsically benign nature of multipolarity, who knows how that would operate? It's a, a level of uncertainty which depends on what are the other poles. Is it a binary pole, a G2 world of China and the United States? Well, that to me represents the, the potentiality of um, some considerable new sets of instabilities of the type we're currently seeing. Can it ever be broader than that involving a European pole, question mark, given Europe's own internal divisions? Where would the other poles lie? India historically has exhibited more of an interest in itself and dealing with the demands of its own democracy and development than it has in a wider global role. So therefore, as we contemplate theoretically what a multipolar world would look like, be very careful about the one, about the, the advantages of the one that we would therefore be leaving uh, into the uncertainty of the one on which we'd be embarking. So as you travel around, I guess we'll... we'll my last question for you. Actually, I have two last questions. One is not on your your view of the world, but an interesting one. of You've mentioned climate change a bunch of times as a core key planetary issue, which it is. And certainly, Australians in grappling with massive drought and increasing heat have had to deal with this very acutely. American public seems to be the outlier here, and this is much bigger than Trump. Uh, and has been for some time in either the level of concern or the level of conviction that we even understand what's happening. Not being of the United States, do you have any explanation or any thoughts as to why it is America has remained so peculiarly not part of a, a planetary consensus about this? Well, I can't speak with any level of um, complete confidence in my own country's part, given that the current conservative government of Australia has um, sought to undo most of the climate change measures which my government put in place up until 2013. So there is, however, a commonality between our two branches of the Anglosphere, that is Australia and the United States, in the public debate on climate change. Both of our political systems have within them a huge amount of influence being brought to bear by the Murdoch media. In Australia, Murdoch owns 70% of the print media, 70%, 7-0. It's huge. In the United States, it's not just the Wall Street Journal, but of course you have Fox. And Fox has become basically the television Bible of the hard Republican right uh, across the United States, not just over the last year or two, but over the last two or three decades. It's been through that period that we've seen the science absolutely crystallize around climate change. And as of um, the 1990s, it became crystal clear that this was no longer a theory, but a reality. And this has been borne out by one set of global scientific reports after another around a global scientific consensus. The single largest clarion uh, cry against that science in the United States and in Australia, has been through the agency of the Murdoch media. Uh, and that's because uh, Murdoch himself is a huge climate change sceptic, and because he sees climate change action as antithetical to 
uh, the growth of the of these two economies, particularly its impact on the mining industry and its impact on electricity prices, etc. So I think there's been a huge influence by a dual national, an Australian fellow called Murdoch, who became an American citizen, who has a huge influence in American politics and an even huger, to paraphrase your president, uh, influence in Australian politics. And that, I think, is a core reason why the climate change uh, debate in both countries has remained so intensely partisan between, as it were, the centre-left, the centre-right, between progressives and conservatives, in a way you simply do not see in Europe. And I think that's the reason. Although you could push back on that, say Murdoch certainly has a pretty prominent media presence in the United Kingdom as well, but you don't have popular attitudes anywhere near registering the kind of skepticism that you have in Australia and the United States. Murdoch's media footprint in the UK would not be as significant in political terms as it is in the US or in the uh, Commonwealth of Australia. And the other factor, of course, is that at least until recently, uh, the United uh, Kingdom's attitude to climate change has also been tempered by its long-standing membership of the European Union. And who has led the media campaign to get Britain out of the European Union? Rupert Murdoch. So final question, as you look at the world and as you look back at your own career, you spend a lot of your life in politics because you believe that uh, the political realm is a vital and necessary place of social action and social change. Do you find that the kind of state of political life in a lot of countries that you visit is precluding people from kind of entering that or seeing that? I mean, in the United States, the midterm elections in 2018 were somewhat hopeful in that there were a lot of young people who were running for office and there was a lot of kind of new blood and people who really believed in that, that government has sort of a necessary and potentially constructive role. But I, I just wonder from your, you know, when you when you kind of look then and now, do you see that being a kind of a positive trend going forward or an anomaly? Life is not to be um, embarked upon by the faint-hearted. In fact, um, the title of my own autobiography is Not for the Faint-Hearted um, because it's full of being sliced and diced. Um, and frankly, uh, it's become increasingly a blood sport. The ability to achieve lasting and substantive, let alone progressive, uh, legislative, economic and social change is hard. Uh, the impediments are great. In the United States, you have redistricting, you have campaign finance, and you have a certain learned helplessness about the ability of politics to bring about sustainable change because of the power of um, lobby groups. But at the same time, the great virtue and value of our democracies is its capacity, again, to act as a domestic automatic stabilizer, as it were. Uh, and that is, as you've seen in the midterms in 2018 in the United States, a whole new generation of folks emerging. And my word of encouragement is that politics um, is about um, bringing about substantial change, and you can do it. Um, it's about a simple core philosophical question, which is whether the power of the state is going to be used for the many or the few. That organizes, that central organizing principle underpins everything we do on tax, through to the environment, through to what we do with our foreign aid policies and everything in between. Therefore, uh, I'm encouraged when I see young people emerge with fire in their belly, understanding this core principle, which separates, as it were, progressive from conservative politics on the one hand, but also understanding that the hard business of change requires a level of guts and determination, which perhaps when they first put up their hand to enter office and not fully across, they'll soon discover it. Uh, the heat in the kitchen is very intense, um, but if they survive it, then they can produce long-term changes, and uh, I'd encourage them to do so. Well, I hope that is in fact the trend going forward, because without people believing that they can change the world that they're in and doing so, at least in part with government as an element, not the element, a driver, not the driver, you can kind of talk yourself into sclerosis. So I certainly hope you're right. You've had an incredible career to date, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on your program. 
So that has been an illuminating conversation with Kevin Rudd, who is, uh, in addition to being insightful, wise, and experienced, uh, he's also unusual in, in the perspective that he brings to bear on the world. Uh, he can be more irreverent at times. I'm not sure that came through in our particular conversation. But I, I do think he is someone who uh, has very strong views about the world, but does not necessarily believe that he is right with a capital R. And one of the great challenges for all of us is to be of strong opinions and passionate views without donning the mantle of certainty and rightness. Uh, in fact, it's almost impossible to have a meaningful conversation if you think you're right and therefore other people are wrong, particularly in a fluid world whose outcomes are unclear, keeping an open mind and asking the hard questions. You know, what is going to happen to the West? What's going to happen between China and the United States? What's going to happen to democracy? What's going to happen with climate change? And being willing to answer those questions with both the certainty of knowing that they are real issues and the uncertainty of not fully knowing exactly how this is going to play itself out, that to me is the key. Uh, it may not make sure that things go right, but at least it can allow us to have an open mind about what could go right. Thanks for listening once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.